our text this morning is Mark chapter 2. Uh, Mark chapter 2, uh, beginning in verse 23. Uh, you can find it in your pew Bibles on page 838. I encourage you to, uh, to use your Bible, to use uh, the Bible in the pew, um, and, uh, and follow along. But as you turn there, I want you to imagine for just a minute an incredibly complex and lengthy document. The Bible certainly is long. But imagine uh, a huge document that it's mandatory that you obey. The United States Tax Code and all the accompanying law. This is not a sermon about the tax code, but merely an example as we move into this. This obese collection of documents has swollen over uh, its lifetime to over 75,000 pages, or nearly 75,000, just under, not quite, just under 75,000 pages. Jimmy Carter, when he was president, once referred to that as a monster and that it was a disgrace to the human race. Now, since the president said that to today, the tax code and all the accompanying law has increased to three times as big. It was a disgrace at 25,000. Now at 75,000, I can only imagine. Detail upon detail, revision upon revision, all the past law, all the current law, all the variations that come with it, it blows my mind that a mandatory process that all Americans must participate in is so unbelievably complex. Who could hope to doing your taxes exactly right? Now, just imagine if there's something greater at stake, not not your bank account, not even your freedom should you be thrown into prison for tax fraud. (laughs) Imagine standing before God and all of this was in the balance. What if your soul was at stake for meeting every jot and tittle, every little detail? Let's see if God's word doesn't teach us something different than, than having to obey a long laundry list of little bitty nitpicks. Follow with me in the text. Mark chapter 2, we begin in verse 23. This is God's word, recounting the life of Jesus, as Peter would have taught John Mark, as Mark recorded that we would know it. One Sabbath, he was going through the grain fields, that he is Jesus. And as they made their way, his disciples began to pluck heads of grain. And the Pharisees were saying to him, Look, why are they doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? And he said to them, Have you never read what David did when he was in need and was hungry, he and those who were with him? How he entered into the house of God in the time of Abiathar, the high priest, and he ate the bread of the presence, which is not lawful for any but the priest to eat, and also gave it to those who were with with him, And Jesus said to them, The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So, the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. Pray with me. Lord, we ask your rich blessing would be upon us as we look at your word and as it looks at us. Father, I pray that we would delight in the presence of the Lord here in this place as we listen to your voice. In Jesus' name, amen. The Pharisees are falsely accusing Jesus. Remember, we've already dealt with that just a little bit as, as we, we looked a couple of weeks ago at Jesus dining with the tax collectors and the sinners and, 
and, and, and they really uh, questioned his practice. Why is he eating with those unclean people? We saw him back as the paralytic was, was lowered into the house, and he said, your sins are forgiven, and they grumbled and complained. And Jesus explained to them and showed them and demonstrated to them that he was able to heal, but most importantly, that he was able to forgive. And this is one of five times in the Gospels that Jesus will be challenged on the issue of the Sabbath. It's an important issue, the fourth commandment, right? That we would remember the Sabbath, that we would honor it to keep it holy. Now, the fourth commandment is a charge to remember. It's a charge to honor is a charge to keep that day holy. Now, what if we sought, what if we sought just to define the Sabbath as the Pharisees would have on all those things that we can't do? Just a long laundry list of things that we cannot do on this one day. Well, the Talmud did just that. Uh, as the teachings and interpretations of the law based on the, the, the commandments of God were compiled, the Talmud grew and grew and grew. And two whole treatises in the Talmud uh, in the day of Jesus, were devoted to the details of how to rightly observe the Sabbath. Now, one of these, the Shabbat, one of these treatises, talks about 39 principal classes of prohibited action, of prohibited actions on the Sabbath. 39 different things you can't do. Listen, you can't sow, you can't plow, you can't reap, you can't gather into sheaves, you can't thresh, you can't winnow, you can't cleanse, you can't grind, you can't sift, you can't knead, you can't bake, you can't shear wool. You can't wash, you can't beat, you can't dye, you can't spin, you can't make a warp of it. You can't make two cords, you can't weave two threads, you can't separate two threads, you can't make a knot, you can't untie a knot, you can't sew two stitches, you can't tear to sew two stitches. You can't catch a deer, you can't kill, you can't skin the deer, you can't salt it, you can't prepare its hide, you can't scrape off its hair, you can't cut it up. You can't write two letters, you can't blot out for the purpose of writing two letters, you can't build, you can't pull down, you can't extinguish lighting a fire, you can't beat with a hammer, and you cannot carry from one property to another. Do I need to repeat any of those? Well, and then they, they would go into further detail. That was just a, a portion of a list, the 39 categories, and they would explain those 39 categories. What about tying a knot? Well, certainly, some people have to tie knots to get dressed. We're not to go around unclothed on the Sabbath, right? Okay. It was determined that a knot that you could tie were only those who could be untied with one hand. So a woman could tie her undergarments on, and she could tie her cap, she could tie her sandals, she could even tie a type of girdle that they wore in that day. <laughs> you couldn't tie a pail of water uh, in order to, to hold it over a well, to draw water out of the well. But... A good, smart woman would soon learn that since she could tie her girdle, she could use her girdle to tie the water pail to the well in order to draw water. <laughs> Quite literally, a loophole. <laughs> a Sabbath day journey could not exceed 2,000 cubits from your own dwelling. But if a day before you went to that 2,000 cubit distance and you placed enough food to have two meals, then you could go that far and then you could go another 2,000 cubits. Now what about this list we saw there? The threshing, the reaping, the sifting, the cleaning of grain. That's where we pick up with Jesus today. Jesus, why are your disciples doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? You see, they would pluck the grain. They were hungry. 
And this, this harkens back to the idea they were not stealing grain, by the way, because you remember, uh, you go back and you read about it in um, the book of Ruth, and you read about it uh, in the Old Testament law, that as you would uh, harvest your grain, that you would leave the edges of the field. You would leave grain there so that people, as they journeyed, they could stop and they could, they could pluck. It wasn't stealing. It was a, it was a traveler's help. It was uh, a, a food program to make sure that people didn't go hungry in your, in your town. It was hospitality. And they were not stealing. It was just that they were plucking the grain. So what are they doing? They're reaping. Uh, they'd rub it in their hands to get rid of the husk and all. So they were, they were threshing. They were sifting. They were cleaning it, all in violation of the details, the jot and tittles of the Sabbath. And so they challenged Jesus on this. They say, why are they doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? The clear indication was, Jesus, you are teaching them to do wrong. You are leading your disciples astray. Well, how does Jesus answer them? I mean, it's it's wonderful and an example to us, a challenge to us. Uh, What Jesus does is, is he answers from Scripture. He uses an account from Scripture, an account which would be considered normative, that is, good behavior exemplified in Scripture that we should follow in it. There's many things that we find in Scripture uh, that are not positive examples, and we generally find the rebuke that goes with them. But in this case, we see uh, in 1 Samuel chapter 21, uh, Jesus is speaking about the day of, of, of Abiathar. Now, Abiathar and his father Ahimelech were both high priests. And the story is actually told about, about the day Ahimelech was actually high priest, and Abiathar would have been the, uh, the trainee, would have been in training uh, to be the high priest, and that's what, what Jesus is mentioning here. And David goes into the temple, or into the, the, the tabernacle there, and he asks Ahimelech to give him the loaves from the table. These were the loaves of the showbread. The showbread would have been out there um, as a, a reminder of God's provision. Uh, the, the, the bread of the table uh, was not permitted just to be uh, given out. Uh, it was uh, consecrated, it was left there, and the priests would come uh, and they would eat it uh, at, at due time. Now, David comes to Himelech and asks, give me the loaves from the table. It would have been an example of, of straining in a gnat and swallowing a camel. If, if Himelech had said, no, 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 you guys just starve. And we're going to keep to the jot and the tittle of the law. Because you keep in mind now, as we're going to see about the Sabbath, the law is given for our good. The law is given for our benefit. And the Pharisees are repeatedly challenged because it says that you tithe on your mint and your cumin, all your little spices. You, you keep intricate and, and meticulous detail about these things, but you miss out on the big picture. You keep the law of Korban. Korban was that you declared this money set apart for the ministry of the priest, but you do that with all your money and your parents are starving and homeless and you don't care for them. This is wrong. We, we strain at gnats and we swallow camels. We... We, we keep the details and we miss the big picture. Now, what, as Jesus tells his story, he is not speaking about an account of some frivolous disregard for the details of the law. He's not saying, oh, it doesn't make any difference. It's neither here nor there. Just, just don't worry about all that stuff. But Jesus is proclaiming an understanding that sometimes necessity requires us to look carefully at what we're doing. At what we're doing. Think about the parable of the Good Samaritan. 
The priest and the Levite, as they pass by the Good Samaritan in the story, they, they get such a, a bad, rep, bad rap, and, and rightly so. But I do believe in their own minds, as Jesus tells his story, and people would have made sense, that they cannot walk across the street and examine a body that might be dead because they would then become unclean, and they would not be able to go and do their job in Jerusalem as they were headed to do. So in their own mind, they said, I've got to keep these, these little things so that I can do good to the people there. And what the parable is teaching and what Jesus is teaching here is the good to be done is right in front of you. And the good to be done is right in front of you. Don't look to find sanctified reasons to not do good. Do not be looking for, for reasons saying, you know, I, I, I find that you know, the, uh, the details of the law would keep me from doing this. Jesus does not repudiate Sabbath observance. He does not dismiss it. He acknowledges it. He acknowledges, he says, the Sabbath was made. He acknowledges this is from God. Now, we're going to understand what he's explaining in that, but it's, it's from God. What he does is he puts it back in the proper context, and he shows us the true purpose of the Lord's day. And it is a general understanding that we can apply across God's word. Jesus would never be one to teach us, just forget about all that stuff that God said before. Just do your best. No, no, no. We, we study God's word. Oh, how I love thy law. And, and, and I meditate day and night, the psalmist says. And, and in doing so, I'm, I'm like a tree planted by the riverbanks. My, my roots drinking in deep. I'm healthy. I bear fruit, the leaves and all. That we love God's word. We study God's word. But we also do not run to God's word to find excuses for not doing good when the opportunity presents itself. Now, if we're going to use the Bible like Jesus did, there's some strong implications on that. One is we've got to know it. We've got to know God's Word well. And let me tell you, as good as it is, Google is no substitute for writing God's Word on your heart. Matter of fact, I'm, I'm, I'm thoroughly convinced, uh, I digress for two seconds here, that Google is ruining our memories, <laughs> that, that we, uh, we, don't, we don't take time to sit there and try to remember anything anymore. We simply look it up on our devices so we don't exercise all the connections in our brains. You know what, next time you're trying to remember something, a Bible verse, uh, a character, an actor in a movie, something like that, meditate on it for a little bit. Don't run to Google. Don't let Google be your brain. But I digress. We must read God's Word diligently. We must read it humbly. We must persevere in knowing God's Word and pray over it and say, Lord, teach me what this is saying. Why did you write this? Why is this here for me? Then when we find texts coming, we'll find these things coming to our mind in times of need. As we write God's Word on our heart, Psalm 119 tells us, that is equipping ourselves for the time of need that we would not sin against God and that we would know the righteous path ahead. The Bible's no good, folks no matter how many translations you have, no matter how many versions you have on your computer and your devices, no matter how nice, nifty, neat, and shiny the leather binding is sitting on your shelf and how glittering gold the leaf is on the edges, no matter how red the text is, no matter how good the maps are, if it's dusty on your shelf, it does you no good. We need to write God's word on our heart that we might not sin against him. Psalm 119, verse 11. So Jesus does more than give an illustration from Scripture. What does he do? He, he goes and he explains what he's talking about. 
And so he places the Sabbath in perspective. We saw the false accusation from the Pharisees. We see Jesus' answer from Scripture. And then we see the explanation that comes from Jesus. He puts the Sabbath in perspective. The issue of the Sabbath, it's not, and it never was, it never was a long list of things that I can't do so that I won't make God mad. That's, that's the way so many things are, are approached. Is saying, well, give me the list of things. Where is the fence? Where is the property line? So I can get right up on it. As I stand close to the edge of the stage, I know where my limit is. Lest I step off and fall. We so often look and say, how far can I go before I run afoul of God's word? That's never been the design of the Sabbath. It's never been the intention of any part of God's word. What we also need to see is across God's word, the Bible is not an even longer list of rules, arduous do's and don'ts and treacherous things that would keep us in good standing with God. We need, we need to see that the, the picture is that of a loving, an obedient, a grace-filled, a merciful, a delightful relationship with the Son of Man. We think about the commandments. This is the fourth that we're talking about today. But how about the sixth? How about the seventh? How about the eighth? The eighth, do not steal. Do not steal is pretty clear. Uh, But as we look to the eighth commandment, we need to see that a thief does not keep the eighth commandment simply because he's been locked up in prison. If you catch a thief, you lock him up in prison, it does not mean that suddenly he is obedient to the eighth commandment because his heart is still that of a thief. A thief who is not stealing, is just out of work. A thief who is not stealing is just incarcerated or sleeping for a time. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 28 says this, Let a thief steal no longer, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. A thief is not a thief when he works and he gives. A liar is not a liar when he speaks the truth in love. Now, when is a Sabbath breaker not a Sabbath breaker? The Lord didn't create the Sabbath for his own sake. But he created it for the man and woman that he created. The Sabbath was was given for our happiness, for our joy, for our refreshment. You think about it steeped back in creation itself. Six days the Lord created. Let there be light. He separated the firmaments. He created the beast and the bird, the fish, And the pinnacle of creation, man. And he said, it's good. And then he created woman. And he said, it's very good. Remember that. And the seventh day, the Lord rested. But what we find in Scripture is that the Lord, he doesn't slumber. The Lord doesn't sleep. That's that's the sign of a false god. That's how Elijah mocked the prophets of Baal and Asherah. He said, well, you worship a god, right? Maybe he's asleep. Cry louder. Maybe he's in the restroom. Maybe he should knock politely. That's the Brandon Bowman translation. But he asked the question, maybe he's gone aside. God doesn't slumber. God doesn't sleep. God does not need the Sabbath for rest. The Sabbath is God's gift for us, and he modeled that, that we would know the goodness of it. The observance of the day that God has given us was never meant to be enforced so as to be uh, an injury 
to others. That's why we say on the, what, are, what activities are appropriate, what are proper, what should we be seeking to do on the Lord's Day? We say it is a day of rest. We ought to rest. It is a day of worship and gladness. We should worship and be glad. It is a day for deeds of mercy and necessity. If you drive home and you see a, a widow with a broken down car alongside the road, do not wave at her and say, God bless, I'll come back tomorrow and help you. That, that we, we do those things which are necessary. The Old Testament, they didn't refer to it as a Pontiac being broken alongside the road. They said if a man's ox is in the ditch, help him get it out on the Sabbath. Don't wait and come back and do it the next day. This is, this is what the Lord has given us. It is not meant to be enforced in a way that brings injury to others' health or to interfere with necessary requirements. The original command to keep the Sabbath day holy was not intended, this is J.C. Ryle uh, as he wrote it, he said, was not intended to be interpreted as to do harm to a body or to prevent acts of mercy to fellow creatures. This was the point that the Pharisees had forgotten and they had buried it under their traditions. In Isaiah, flip with me to Isaiah chapter 58. Isaiah chapter 58, we see a wonderful testimony and exhortation about the Sabbath. Isaiah 58, just two verses, 13 and 14. If you turn, your, turn back your foot from the Sabbath, from doing your pleasure on my holy day, and you call the Sabbath a delight and the holy day of the Lord honorable, if you honor it, not going your own ways, or seeking your own pleasure, or talking idly, then you shall take delight in the Lord, and I will make you ride on the heights of the earth. I will feed you with the heritage of Jacob your father, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Calling the Sabbath a delight. I think we struggle with that. I know we struggle with that. We so often see the Sabbath, the Lord's Day, as being a catch-all. As being that last opportunity to get things done before the grind starts all over again tomorrow. Now I know I know some of us uh, have to work. I'm, I'm thankful for 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 doctors, for nurses, for police officers, for firemen. I would not want my house to catch on fire today, and the firemen to be observing the Sabbath and say, "Let it burn. We'll help you shovel up tomorrow." That's that's not the the design of it. There are those issues of necessity, but how often do we simply? Uh, use Sunday as just that, that day to catch up on the business that the world inflicts on us, but not do business with God. Not, not use this as an opportunity to call the Sabbath a delight, presence, wonderful presence of Almighty God. He says, call it a delight, rejoice in it, rejoicing in the Lord. It also says that we would not, it says, uh, not talking idly right in the midst of this, saying that it's not a reckless disregard for the day that we just we sit back and say, I'm going to do nothing and let whatever happens, happens. We take deliberate action. Not abandoning, but pursuing godliness in a great way. And so we have to ask, as we look at this passage, and look at Jesus' teaching, uh, as in all of our following of God, we must make sure that we don't simply pursue this as an opportunity to say, Lord, what must I do and what must I not do? Just give me the yeas and the nays. Just give me the mandatories and the negatives. Instead, I want you to ask yourself a question this Lord's Day. 
what has God given me? And how richly may I delight in it when I consider the Sabbath? We complain. We, we, we all complain. We complain about things like this. I just don't have enough time. I just don't have enough time. Well, my friends, there's never been more time. Bach, Newton, Einstein, Moses, King David, Abraham. There's never been an occasion of anyone having more than 24 hours in a day apart from the time that God had Joshua hold the sun back in the sky. An exception that proves the rule. We complain that it's not enough time to do what? To read the Bible. If I had more time, I'd read the Bible. The Lord has given you time to be in His Word. Each and every day, but particularly on the Sabbath. I don't have enough time to pray. Well, each and every day, we need to set that time aside. But, but what a wonderful gift is the Sabbath for prayer. To enjoy time with dear Christian friends. To call my parents. To visit shut-ins. To worship. To rejoice in the company of my precious family, my church family. And to rest. God has given us that time. God has given us that gift because we need it. We need the Lord's day. And so I ask you to consider not how much of my own stuff can I do and still be okay with God. It's how much can I abide and delight in the things that God has given me in this day. He's given me the privilege and the blessing of being in the house of God to lift my voices in in anticipation of what it's going to be like in heaven. And and if if you say, well, I don't think this is so much like heaven, well, well, maybe your heart's just not in it. That we need to be rejoicing and saying what makes the fellowship of the assembly wonderful and delightful is that God has said, where you have gathered in my name, I'm there with you. People think, and I read this quote just yesterday and had to include it, people think that Christianity is doing all the righteous things that you hate and avoiding all the wicked things that you love in order to go to heaven. That's what most people think about religion. It's doing all the righteous things that you don't want to do and, and, and avoiding all the wicked things that you really want to do so that you can go to heaven. And that's wrong. That's wrong. All that is is a lost man or a lost woman with a little bit of religion. A Christian. The Christian faith is this. Our hearts have been changed. We have new delights. We have new affections. We delight that the Lord has given us this day. Let me, let me give you a clear exhortation. Clear, straightforward, no, no beating around the bush. Ephesians 5.16 says, Make the most of your time because the days are evil. And that means that you can't bank up hours. Hours are going to come and they're going to go. It's not like money. Money, a lot of times you can set aside. You can use it later. There's no way I can take a couple hours today and use them next week. You can't do it. They continue to progress around. We must make the best use of our time because the days are evil. How are you doing when it comes to the Sabbath? How are you doing? How are you experiencing and delighting in the gift of the Lord's day? Think about it this way. Those 24 hours per week, what would you do if you considered that over the next year that the Lord had given you seven weeks and three days worth of time? For in 52 weeks, that's exactly what he's given you. Seven weeks and three days, unless it's leap year, and you might get one more. Seven weeks and three days to set apart for worship, to set apart for deeds of mercy and kindness, to set apart for rest, 
to say, I'm going to schedule and block this out, not so rigidly that I can't be flexible to do good as I see it needed, but, but that I'm going to rejoice and deliberately pursue that Sabbath rest and fellowship with the Lord. We make the most of our time because the days are going to pass. One last thing that we see here, and that is not only do we see the Sabbath in perspective, but Jesus, he puts himself in perspective. He says, I'm the Lord of the Sabbath. I'm sovereign over your days. I'm sovereign over your work. I'm sovereign over your rest. I'm sovereign over your worship. And this means that we do not grudgingly adhere to interpretations of the letter of the law, but we seek to understand and apply all that God is teaching us in the spirit in which it's given. Do you remember two weeks ago when we talked about the idea that that Jesus' disciples weren't fasting, but John's disciples were, the Pharisees were? Why weren't Jesus' disciples fasting? There's a simple answer. Jesus was with them. You don't fast at the wedding when the bridegroom is there. Jesus was with them. Now, the presence of Jesus, the presence of Jesus as they walked through the fields, as they were listening to him, as they were walking to them, we need to see that the disciples were in the best possible way keeping the Sabbath because they were doing what? Delighting in the Lord. And that's what he says. He says, the Son of Man, his favorite title to refer to himself, God with us, the incarnation, the Word made flesh, the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. And so, in that Sabbath, they were delighting in him. And for all their observances, the Pharisees were not. They were not. They were seeking their own delight. They were spurning the presence of Jesus. And in just one chapter, we're going to read that the Pharisees, that they went out and they immediately held counsel with Herodians against Jesus, seeking how to destroy him. They were intent on destroying this man, not delighting in his presence. So as Jesus says, I am the Lord of the Sabbath, he is the creator of the Sabbath, and he's given it for you. This gift, don't despise it. Don't unwrap it and say, well, thank you, and set it aside like a pair of socks that you don't much care for. Cherish it, rejoice in it, say, Lord, thank you for this gift. Forgive me for not delighting in this gift. We find our greatest blessing in worshiping and serving and praying and resting and abiding in Jesus as the disciples were doing that day. For that Sabbath, that presence of our Savior is made for you and for me. May God's richest blessing be ours as we rejoice on this Lord's day and always. Pray with me. Our Heavenly Father, forgive us. Forgive us for grudgingly pursuing obedience in a way, Father, that might capture our hands but not our heart. Forgive us, Lord, for trying to find the loopholes that will allow us to do what we really want and somehow skirt your instruction and admonition to us. Father, would you lead us in loving and delighting ourselves in you? Father, I pray that we would see the precious gift of the Sabbath to be that opportunity that we might sing praise to your name, that we might rejoice in the wonderful hearth of family and the joyful application of love and good deeds to the widow, to the orphan, to the weak among us, to the stranded, to the needy, And Father, that we might do those things which are of necessity in order to do good, that others might see our good deeds and glorify you, our Father in heaven. Forgive us, Lord God, for not cherishing this precious gift. 
May it be more precious in our sight and our minds. Through Christ our Lord. Amen.